so Amelia, before we get started today, I wanted to take a moment to honor Maya Peterson. Um, I learned this past week, uh, it was really shocking. She died unexpectedly. Um, I just wanted to say a few words to, you know, to memorialize her. Uh, Maya was a professor of history at UC Santa Cruz and author of Pipe Dreams, Water and Empire in Central Asia. I didn't know Maya very well, but I did get a chance to talk to her when I interviewed her and Chris Ward in January for an event at the Russian East European Eurasian Studies Center for our spring series, Nature's Revenge, Ecology, Animals, and Waste in Eurasia. And I just wanted to offer my sincere condolences to her family and friends and anyone who is touched by her life. And from some of the comments I've been seeing on social media, it seems like she had a profound impact packed on many people's lives. So uh, I just want to take a moment and, and say that. So um, this week, we have. I'm really excited about the interview for this week uh, because it, it touches on a lot of topics that I'm particularly interested in. And this is an interview with Dina Feinberg about her new book or her recently published book, Cold War Correspondence, Soviet and American Reporters on the Ideological Front Lines, 1945 to 1991. And um, I've had a couple of conversations with Dina uh, over the last year or so, and we mentioned that in the interview. But her work really touches on one of the things that I've become fascinated with, and that is Russia's place in the American imagination and why, or not necessarily why, but the role Russia plays as an external other in how Americans understand themselves and the world around them. It seems that despite the fact that the Cold War has gone away, Russia seems to play, an, I think, an outsized role in the American imagination. And we certainly saw this uh, in 2016, really until... Uh, the end of Donald Trump's presidency. Yeah, and this role, it's really shaped by the foreign correspondence that um, Dina talks about in her book and Dina follows in her book. And I just, I really love looking at foreign correspondence because it is such a hard job. And the people that take that job, they're just a really unique breed of people. It's like, you're in a foreign country, you're working on short deadlines, you're often completely surrounded by powerful people, by unusual people, by dangerous people in some cases. And it really requires this unique skill set of like being a pressure driven person, being extremely independent, um, having strong foreign language skills, and then also just being able to work by yourself for long, long periods of time without making a lot of money. And so the fact that these are the people that are kind of crafting, crafting this uh, version of the other is really interesting to me. Yeah, I have to say that um, when I first started blogging and paying attention to reporting on Russia many years ago, I used to be, uh, which I now think is quite unfairly critical of foreign correspondents who are writing in English about Russia. Um, and at the time, you know, I, I was really critical of the way they portrayed Russia, uh, the way they wrote about it, the tropes that they use, which... I think merits criticism, continue to merit criticism. But one of the things that I that has changed in my view of it is I start to started to understand more uh, how the context in which journalists work in and the difficulties uh, and the pressures and you know the fact that they have to produce content so quickly uh, and how that influences how they report on on in this case Russia and 
one of the things I really like about Dina's book is that she talks a lot about that stuff. And she in, in the interview, you'll hear she talks a lot about it. Um, the other thing that I, I really like about this interview too is I also have a fascination with Soviet journalism, which I don't know much about because I haven't spent a lot of time. But I do always have wondered how one practices journalism in a highly censored and politically restrictive environment um, and how journalists – you know, Soviet journalists, given that context, how Soviet journalists understand themselves, their profession, their the ethics of their profession and their identities, and how they use that position uh, to craft an image of the other, in this case, the United States, that at the one hand emphasizes the differences, which are is important with particularly in the Cold War, but also tries to not alienate or also to avoid alienating their audience. So that dance, I think, between with all those issues is a really interesting one. Yeah, and I think Dina does a great job answering that question in this interview. It's a really good one. Welcome to the SRB Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Amelia Parler. Uh, each week, we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. Um, the SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks. And if you really enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. So, uh, Amelia, why don't you introduce Dina? Today's interview is with Dina Feinberg. She's a lecturer in modern history at the University of London. Dina, along with Artemy Kalinowski, are editors of Reconsidering Stagnation, Ideology and Exchange in the Brezhnev Era. Her new book is Cold War Correspondence, Soviet and American Reporters on the Ideological Frontlines, 1945 to 1991. And that book is published by Johns Hopkins University Press. Here is Dina Feinberg. So Dina, it's really nice to talk to you again. I think this is, I think the third time I've interviewed you because I interviewed you for this documentary I'm working on. And then I interviewed you with um, Victoria uh, Zorlova for an event at Pitt. And now we're going to talk specifically about your book. So it's really nice to, uh, to have you back. Thank you so much for having me. It is such a pleasure. I have been a fan of the podcast since you started uh, and kind of always envisioned my own uh, performance on it. So I'm very excited about this. Well, it's kind <laughs> yeah. of an encore in many respects. <laughs> so, so, but so third time awesome. Right, right, definitely. So, just for, for those who don't know you, why don't you uh, briefly introduce yourself? So, I'm Dina Feinberg. I was born in the Soviet Union. And I was in my teens when my family emigrated to Israel. Uh, I lived in Israel for many years. I did my BA at Tel Aviv University. And then I moved overseas to do a PhD in the United States at Rutgers University. 
And there I worked with Jochen Heldeck and David Fogelson, who were amazing mentors. I lived and worked in the US and in Germany, Netherlands, and Great Britain. Right now, I'm an associate professor in modern history and the director of the History BA at City University of London. I'm trained as an historian of modern Russia and modern United States, and I'm interested in US-Russia relations and Russia's relations with the world. I'm a cultural historian, and I guess because of my personal biography that involved a great deal of cross-cultural crossing, I'm interested in the ways that people think, imagine, and represent themselves and the world around them. So collective and personal identities, and I'm also interested in the role of media in society. So I didn't know that you, you left as a teenager. So how old were you? Uh, if I'll tell you how old I was, that people will know how old I am now. So I would rather not, oh. <laughs> but old enough, tell you what, old enough to be in the Octoberings and the Young Pioneers. How about that? And old enough to study Soviet history in a Soviet school. Wow. Okay. So did you like, so I'm, I'm always curious about this. So when you, and especially given your topic, it's actually a, a good personal connection. So when you uh, landed in Israel, um, what do you remember what your impressions were compared to what you imagined? I don't think I imagined anything because you really didn't know much about Israel. It just, I don't think I even had a concept of a foreign country. Kind of, it's very hard to imagine where where you live somewhere that you never traveled abroad, right? You kind of, you don't imagine anything. What I remember is I remember, you know, that everything was absolutely different. Uh, so the smells, the, the the way the air feels, the people, and I think kind of, you know, there were, Soviet Union of that time and Israel uh, were very different places on so many levels. So I really remember this kind of being fish out of water um, experience. And um, yeah, and I also kind of, the way it connects to my topic is number one, I do remember what people thought about Russia and the kinds of questions I got. So everybody asked me whether we lived in Siberia um, whether I had seen sunshine and trees, uh, did we need to kind of stand in the line to get, was I hungry for food? Uh, and I was kind of, you know, I, I, I later reflected about like, why am I doing this topic over the years? And, and I think this like early encounter in how people imagine a foreign land and what kinds of questions they have, uh, what kinds of imaginations and ideas they have about Russia. Uh, probably played a role. I think, again, again, thinking back to it, I think it also resonated with me for personal reasons. Kind of my protagonists were these like insiders and outsiders who cross, constantly crossing boundaries of cultures and customs and kind of uh, trying to make sense of uh, the world around them, of their home countries, of the personal experiences. And so all of that uh, was interesting and recognizable to me because of my experiences. But you know, in in Israel though, there is a there is a you know sizable Russian, Jew, Russian Jewish diaspora uh, that left the Soviet Union. So did did their understandings of you know Soviet life, where you came from, were how did they square up? I mean, I mean now there is, but we came at the very beginning of that wave, and so I didn't know many that many Russian 
immigrants. I certainly didn't have many in my school. So uh, I was, you know, very fast accultured um, as an Israeli um, and actually didn't want to do much with that part of my personal history uh, until I got to university, really. Um, I think... I then thought about this kind of also meeting, having met uh, people who came from Russia to the United States. And I think there are these different attitudes that exist toward the Soviet experience. And within my own family, there was not this like negative thing. Like my pa- I was not taught to hate my Soviet past. Uh, I was taught to, you know, love Russian literature, uh, to appreciate Russian cultural products. My parents have a lot of fondness towards, you know, their Soviet past. And so overall, like, you know, I didn't have this like um, a negative attitude or felt that it's not mine in some kind of way. And what about what about when you went to when you came to the United States and you're getting into this topic, right? Deeper into this topic. What what struck you about American attitudes towards say, the Soviet Union or you as a, you know, an, an immigrant from there? I think, again, by the time I came to America, um, Americans found it very hard to place me. And because I occupy these, you know, like, am I Russian? Am I Israeli? Uh, what's my accent? Who are you? And I also didn't feel that it, Americans cared. Kind of, I don't think it mattered in my personal interactions. I don't think that people kind of you know, oh, people thought it's interesting, but not kind of no judgment value, value judgment associated with that. Um, I had spent, you know, many years studying American perceptions of Russia and how Americans talk, write and think about Russia. And I think it certainly changed a great deal since since I began this project and since I'm aware of these topics. So even kind of within the United States, there had been this transformation of uh, images and representations and perceptions uh, that took place uh, over the last 15 years. So you have this book, a fascinating book, and I think it's a much needed book, um, Cold War Correspondence, Soviet and American Reporters on the Ideological Front Lines. What, what in doing this book and, and doing this comparison between how Soviet uh, foreign correspondents working in America and American foreign correspondents working in the Soviet Union, what is the story that you want to tell readers with this book? So I want to tell three stories or three big stories. One story is how Americans and Soviets who lived through the Cold War understood themselves by creating images of each other. Foreign correspondents were very keen observers. They aspired to properly understand the host country. At the same time, the journalists and their reports were shaped by the values of their own cultures. So international reporting described the other side in recognizable self-referential terms. It illustrated and personalized the differences between the two superpowers with real-life example. In other words, journalists' reports about them highlighted what makes us unique, our way of life better, our ideas most beneficial for humanity. And so by telling stories about the Cold War enemy, journalists helped Soviet and American audiences to see themselves as citizens of the socialist or the liberal capitalist world and to appreciate it. 
And so the book shows how these mutual representations evolved over the years, how they were shaped by changes in international relations, domestic politics, and Soviet and American cultures. And crucially, this leads me to the second story that I want to tell, which is how international reporting and representations of us and them were shaped by different people and the interactions between them. So obviously the journalists themselves, but also their sources, editors, news media executives, government officials, information specialists, propagandists, diplomats, American pundits, Soviet censors, and audiences on both sides. And the book shows how these different groups and actors were involved in one way or the other in international reporting, sometimes down to the individual item. And I think it's really important to remember that knowledge, in this case, news and information about foreign countries are made by people. And these people operate within particular institutional, cultural, and political contexts. Information is always limited and it's always subjective. And I think it's important to recognize that when we think about the information universe of the Cold War and the information universe in which we live today. And finally, this is a story about people whose personal and professional lives were closely entangled in the Cold War. So how does one live in a place that stands against everything that your nation holds dear? How do you tell your compatriots about it in a way that they would understand? Um, professional duty demanded that journalists immerse themselves in the other country and make it intelligible for people at home. They were also expected to resist the pool of enemy ideology. And so the book shows kind of how they navigate this process, um, how they projected their Soviet and American cultures onto the foreign world, and also brought their personal interests, values, and convictions into their reporting. And through this, there is like a very interesting insight into Cold War ideology as a whole, right? Foreign correspondents contributed to the country's propaganda, but they were also personally invested in the ideological rhetoric that they created and reproduced. And when we look at their private, doc private documents, we see that Cold War ideology was not abstract or fixed. It was dynamic and adaptive, and it helped individuals to make sense of their experiences and to understand the world around them. Uh, what makes journalists um, stand out from other people who may interact with the respective countries, like whether they be diplomats or academics or, you know, even tourists? Many things. First of all, they spent many years living abroad and were actually embedded in the country. So they rented apartments, shopped, traveled, watched television, went to the cinema, took their kids to the playgrounds, occasionally sent their kids to local schools. So met kind of people. They also had access to government officials and institutions that your regular traveler, you know, a tourist or somebody on a delegation does not have. And all this allowed, allowed them to develop intimate knowledge about the other side that was deeper and more comprehensive than that of other observers. Number two is that their observations were widely circulated. So an average report was printed in the national papers, then reprinted in local press. Radio programs had many listeners. So journalists reached millions of people on a daily basis. And this is also unique. What is also unique is that 
they had access to regular people on the one hand, but also to their nation's policymakers, diplomats, embassy officials, and academics. And the information that they produced circulated and had impact within the elite and the policy circles. And so this ability to reach regular people, experts, and policymakers is another thing that makes them uh, really special. The last thing is that on both sides, professional journalists were associated with truth-telling. So, in fact, truth-telling was both a requirement and a source of professional legitimacy. And during the Cold War, we see how journalists established themselves as expert authority on the Soviet Union or the United States and reach out to the audiences as experts who bear this truth that was embedded kind of in their professional self-representation and how people saw them, which is also kind of another important distinction from others. So, you know, you said that that this these images are made and consumed and circulated by people within, you know, ideological and institutional contexts. So who were these people, these journalists? What about, you know, where did they come from? What was their education, their class, et cetera? Uh, and, and, you know, who, who among your, your cast of characters stands out to you as, as, as unique? They're all unique. Um, <laughs> so interestingly, uh, there was actually much in common in their backgrounds, at least in principle. Uh, to begin with, most Cold War correspondents were men. They usually trained in their country's prestigious institutions and had professional, cultural, and social ties with the political establishments. On both sides, they usually took a range of minor assignments abroad before going to the Soviet Union or the United States. American correspondents rotated between different countries, so you could serve in Vietnam, and many did, then Moscow, then Middle East, etc. Soviets, on the other hand, specialized in one or two particular countries. So most Soviet correspondents who worked in the United States stayed there for many years and did a number of tours. The Moscow or New York slash Washington assignment was considered super prestigious. And journalists often went on to have very successful careers as editors, commentators, or political advisors. Um, to illustrate, kind of like I said, I told you they're all unique, but I just kind of going to choose two people, one American and one Soviet, to illustrate kind of some of these points. So my American character is Harrison Salisbury, whom I like a lot. Uh, he kind of hails from the Midwest, and he really kind of worked his ground up as a reporter. So he started like as a very local reporter, then moved to like the regional center, and then he joins uh, United Press, which is a news agency. Uh, and he kind of works um, in Washington during the, the New Deal, and he goes to, uh, when, wars, when World War II starts, he goes to Europe as United Press, UP, uh, war correspondent. So he has a, he's mostly stationed in London, and then he has a stint in Moscow to relieve kind of UP's permanent Moscow correspondent for, for several months. So he has Moscow experience. Uh, and... You know, he travels kind of to Stalingrad front and uh, kind of lives this life of um, foreign press corps in wartime Moscow. And after he finishes, kind of after the war finishes, like just barely in kind of 45, 46, he publishes this book, Russia on the Way. And it's a very positive book about the Soviet Union. And he says, oh, like the Soviet Union is going to like, like, you know, it's going to liberalize after the war. And, um, you know, and Stalin's not going to be so bad. And of course... It all, it's, it's completely the opposite. Um, 
his career kind of stagnated, not because of the book, just because kind of I think this war excitement kind of um, was hard to to match something to this. And so uh, he wants to join the New York Times. And the New York Times tell him, well, you can come and work for us on the condition that the Soviets will give you a visa to go to Moscow. So you can only work for us as a Moscow correspondent. And the Times is in the, kind of in the pickle because their correspondent left for a holiday abroad for vacation at home and was not allowed to come back. So their, their Moscow bureau was vacant and they weren't happy about this. And so he eventually gets to Moscow, and this is 1949. And so uh, that's like the heart or, you know, the beginning, uh, the intensification of the anti-American campaign. And it's a gloom and dark experience for Salisbury, and he records this in, uh, you know, in his subsequent writing, but also you can see it very clearly in the letters and sources at the time. Uh, he feels very frustrated. It's very hard to report from Moscow. Um at this time, the journalists are very heavily censored. They're very heavily circumvented in their movements. Um, they have this like very kind of strong feeling of, uh, he calls it, living uh, in a siege behind enemy lines. Uh, and uh, unfortunately for Salisbury, uh, he's also sometimes not entirely trusted by his own newspaper, and he gets these kind of... Uh, Why is that? Um there was American press kind of suspected all its correspondence of uh, potentially going soft on communism. Uh, and so they would, so editors back in the United States, this is not unique to Salisbury, I guess. Editors back in the United States would second guess the dispatches of, that the journalists from Moscow are sending, and they would constantly worry uh, that kind of that they're you know, vigilance and ideological allegiance was compromised. And so they would look at the dispatches and kind of wonder, is this kind of, had they gone soft on communism? Are they being manipulated by the Soviets? Are they being manip manipulated by Soviet propaganda? It ties kind of into like greater questions, you know, um, American press at the time is not sure whether they even should have correspondence in Moscow. There is a big professional debate on whether or not you should have journalists reporting from a country where such a heavy censorship operates. There are disagreements within the media, but also like it translates into this kind of personal um, distrust uh, or suspicion or just like uneasiness towards their own people in the Soviet Union. Right. And there's also McCarthyism too, right? So there's- Oh, a that's, this is absolutely, this is absolutely kind of, you know, related to McCarthyism because as, yeah, uh, there is this kind of, and the press is, uh, you know, scrutinized by McCarthyism and kind of becomes, uh, also moves to be under this magnifying glass. Right. So, so the, dis the so the, and, and before you get into the, your, your Soviet example, uh, there's a, and this is one of the things I've been wondering too, is that the role of say the editors and the, the institution of the newspaper back home, it also serves as a disciplinary function in the sense that, you know, correspondence, they can't, you know, even how they perceive say, quote, Soviet reality, it has to fit within a certain acceptable ideological framework. No, absolutely. And uh, Salisbury is like the poster case for that. And there is a great example in the book that I will not spoil that shows kind of precisely that. 
how um, a report that he produces gets kind of second-guessed and tampered with and fits into these anxieties um, and also shows these mechanisms of intervention and what kinds of how Americans responded uh, when reporting from Moscow kind of did not tally up with what they thought the Soviet Union was like. Um, again, Salisbury is a great example of this, but not the only one. Um, good for him because uh, Stalin dies and he has a great scoop on Stalin's death, which is really wonderfully written. Um, then he takes kind of Soviet Union changes really rapidly with Stalin's death. And so Salisbury stays kind of an extra time and just travels around the Soviet Union and writes um, Pulitzer winning uh, series on uh, Russia after Stalin. He also writes an award winning book about his experiences in Moscow. And through kind of that Pulitzer and the book, he really becomes an expert on the Soviet Union just at this very time, kind of, you know, within years after Stalin's death, when everybody's very excited about the Soviet Union. This this whole idea, like the, the you know, the parting of a curtain, we can now go and look at these Russians, like first time we have access to regular Russian people. And so he really taps into that and, um, and builds himself um, as an expert kind of from this very kind of very lucky moment. Um, and though he then deepens his expertise and he kind of uh, travels and reports uh, from Eastern Europe and he eventually also becomes an expert on China. Um, and so, and I, and I told you that these kind of lives that really kind of personally and professionally become connected to the Cold War. So uh, in 1968, Salisbury, Salisbury goes to North Vietnam and he's one of the first, if not the first, to report critically about uh, the conduct of US military in Vietnam. Uh, which, of course, annoys everyone immensely, you know, in the State Department and, and beyond and makes him a, kind of a subject of uh, surveillance. Um, he's also engaged in the Pentagon Papers, uh, kind of in the production. A lot of people were participating in the production, kind of making them, you know, getting them out. And so he was one of the people who was involved. He would hold um, senior posts uh, in the New York Times. He'll be much, much respected and a respected spokesman on uh, Russian and Chinese affairs until his death. He, he wrote many, many books, um, participated in all sorts of government initiatives. So kind of this really kind of professional life that was really, really embedded in the Cold War and kind of really thrived as as a result of this. And what, so what about what about a Soviet example? Since, you know, most of most of us aren't as familiar with, uh, you know, Soviet journalists. I mean, they're not even, I think in the popular imagination, they're not even considered journalists, right? <laughs> oh, yes. Um, so my Soviet journalist is uh, Stanislav Nikolaevich Kondrashov. And uh, he came from a working class family in a small town near Gorky. Um, he was admitted to MGIMO, which is Moscow State Institute for International Relations, which is a rather new and very prestigious and important place that plays a very central role in um, training Soviet cadres for international work. So a lot of people who would um, find themselves working in all sorts of kind of in, you know, all these areas, um, outward facing areas of Soviet establishment, the various ideological committees for relations with foreign countries, the various kind of organizations. So many of these people trained in this institution. Uh, many Soviet correspondents studied there. So in Kondrashov's class alone, three people would become foreign correspondents. 
Um, so he graduated in 1951 and he was assigned to the International Department of Izvestia. Um, it's not a very exciting career at the beginning. Uh, but then Soviet press, kind of two years after that, Stalin dies. And Soviet press changes a great deal. Uh, again, very fast. And one of the changes is that newspapers start to open more and more bureaus in foreign countries, and they start promoting journalists like Kondrashov, young, recent graduates from elite universities, speaking foreign languages, to these overseas posts. So Kondrashov is sent abroad in 1956 to report on the Suez crisis. He does a good job, and so he's appointed as a correspondent for North Africa in the Middle East, which is a huge area of responsibility. Kind of, he lives in Cairo and just like travels around. Um, he spends there five years and then uh, comes back and is appointed as a correspondent in New York, which is kind of considered one of the most important international posts. And he is very young, so again, that shows you this um, kind of generation of correspondents who are very young, who get to work in these very important posts in the West. He would eventually spend more than 10 years in the United States, first as a New York correspondent and later as Washington correspondent. Uh, he wrote extensively and very thoughtfully about the United States and this career trajectory, right? So this kind of a uh, young graduate that joins the newspapers, um, in the late 40s, like early 50s, then kind of after Stalin's death, um, kind of propelled upward and abroad. There's something that many journalists of his generation shared. And uh, and in fact, a lot of Soviet correspondents, because of these kind of long assignments, they would stay in these posts uh, for years. So a lot of kind of, for many years, the reporting from the United States would be done by these people. And Kondrashov is very interested in um, like what Irfan Petrov called Little Golden America, right? So small peripheral towns and the lives of people kind of in blue collar professions. And he really, and he kind of saw connection that he, he saw himself being able to relate to that because of his own kind of modest working class origins and background. Uh, and so he traveled a great deal around the United States and he wrote about these experiences um, extensively. He was also very interested in U.S. consumer culture and wrote about it extensively and in very critical terms. Another thing that he I just uh, another thing that he really liked is that in private and in public, he also reflected on this difference between us and them. Right, comparing and contrasting Russian and so Russian Soviet and American people, and he kind of was preoccupied with these questions. He was also very interested in understanding Americans within their own historical and sociopolitical context. So very reflective reporting at the same time. Uh, let me let me ask you about the, the the style of reporting, and this I think also goes to the the fact that you state that there are two distinctive Soviet and American sets of truth sy systems, because one of the things that strikes me about Soviet reporting, and this is for publishing articles in newspapers, not the long form book journalism, is that the the Soviet journalism is more literary. It's more like the it reminds me of this feliton tradition where it's not it's not like in the American case where it's very like fact, you know, stale. It's not as literary. Listen to me, I'll just leave it at that. Um, so talk about this, like the different styles and how it relates to this this issue of, you know, um, of the truth systems. So when I say truth systems uh, in the book, I mean that 
like the overall context in which international reporting was created and came to be considered as truthful. So this means their respective ideologies, the political cultures, professional journalistic practices, and even the understanding of the press's role in society. They're all very different. And so what the journalists write, how they engage with their sources, how their work is processed and framed, their relationships with editors and officials and readers, all of this is shaped by these different two systems. And the truth that foreign correspondents told were different as a result. Um, and like I said, there are different kind of professional practices attached to this, right? So in the United States, very central principle of American journalism is the idea of objectivity. And one of the central practices of objectivity is separating factual reporting from um, interpretive journalism. And this is some kind of, uh, and so a lot of um, American reporting would be, you know, kind of more factual um, trying to kind of walk this balance. In the Soviet Union, the most important thing is to convey kind of the moral truth of socialism, to help Soviet people become better builders of socialism. As Soviet journalists um, see themselves like Soviet writers, and they talk about this explicitly, kind of as engineers of human souls. In fact, writers were very involved in shaping Soviet international reporting as it developed, you know, in the early post-war years. So writers gave it this kind of, um, this contemplative, uh, thoughtful aspect, like they emphasized that its importance in international reporting. And Soviet reporting would be um, more literal, um, not that bothered with, you know, establishing and documenting facts. Um writing these kinds of stories where journalists, you know, speculate on the inner working of their characters, uh, these like lengthy, thoughtful um, kind of reflections. Um, and, and so there are different, what is interesting um, is that, for instance, in US reporting, as we know, a human interest story is very important, right? So you use individuals to illustrate particular you know, larger things. They just use individuals as a hook. You tell a story about, thing, about what happens by talking about individual people. And uh, we see this also enter Soviet international reporting in um, in the 50s from, from a different direction, from interest in a person and from um, interest in making journalism relatable to socialist people. But still, kind of, a, we see this parallel practice that Soviets too start focusing on one individual person to tell a larger story about a story, kind of a larger story that also has kind of larger significance for understanding socialism in the world and socialism and capitalism, etc. Uh, Amelia, you want to jump in? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, so I have a question for you kind of about the news cycle. Uh, I worked in a newsroom for a little while and something that really stood out to me was like this importance of having a really quick news cycle. And obviously, um, with foreign correspondence, with this huge geographical difference, um, and then on top of that, all of the censorship, all of the um, eyes from the policymakers being on these reporters, I'm wondering just like, what was the effect on the news cycle 
um, of having all of these kind of hurdles to jump through? And did that affect some of the, the truth telling in this reporting? This is a fantastic question. Uh, I also like how it's informed by, you know, your kind of your, your experiences. I think to begin with, the news cycle was kind of slower uh, than it is now, like way slower. Um, but also a lot of times what they did to bypass the, the various hurdles, and I'm going to talk about the hurdles in a second, what they did is that they would use uh, news agencies, um, stay, kind of U.S. news agencies stated in uh, London and France for kind of really flash reports, right? So, for example, when Stalin dies, nobody's allowed to file. Okay, it takes them some time to figure out what's going on. Once they figure out what's going on, there is like a complete shutdown. So there is no information coming out of the Soviet Union. And they agreed in advance on all sorts of tricks that they're going to do with their editors. Um, kind of what happened, like what they're going to do uh, in Stalin, if, if Stalin dies and how they're going to kind of communicate these news. But the Soviets are just sitting on this and nobody's allowed to say anything until TASS, which is the Soviet Union's the time only news agency so they release an announcement that announcement goes to news agencies that subscribe to TAS overseas and this is how it gets out um in this particular case uh the soviets completely control uh you know the flow of the news the the whoever situated in london or paris can can london was like the major hub for European news. So if London wants to say, you know, like, like Stalin is gravely ill without uh, task confirmation, they will and they can say this. But they cannot uh, know, they, they cannot say that he died before TAS makes it official. Um, and so, so there's like a lot of, there is a lot of, like I said, Soviets control this flow of information. It often depends on uh, kind of Soviet technologies, uh, Soviet censorship, et cetera. So for breaking, breaking news, they relied on someplace else. Uh, you still had like very good scoops from the Soviet Union, but because the competition was completely different um, in, in a sense that kind of radio feeds from the same thing. Television is not even a thing, uh, is not yet a big thing in the 40s, certainly no internet. So uh, the cycle itself is much slower and news kind of trickle in, in different ways. The Soviets were always worried about the timeliness of their news. Uh, and there was like a lot of internal discussion. So kind of we need, there's obsession with timely information. So we say, oh, we need to kind of um, make this more efficient. We need to make our information more timely. Can we please stop uh, giving it to three separate editors and five party members to read? Can please uh, Soviet party members, like Politburo members, stop uh, you know, editing our renditions of their own speeches? That will make our information really timely. And so there is this kind of internal discussion that never quite gets resolved. And so you see them kind of lamenting uh, the absence of timeliness all the way into the Brezhnev era. Uh, and this is when they are actually competing with foreign radio broadcasting that is widely listened in the Soviet Union. And um, they are kind of, you know, specifically on Soviet news or Soviet news that the Soviet Union doesn't want to get out um, are discovered much quicker via foreign broadcasters. What are so? How, how did these these people talk a little bit about, um, you know, their lives on their beats? You know, in living life in the Soviet Union as an American correspondent and, and life as a Soviet correspondent in America. 
what are some, some, you know, challenges, but also, you know, I don't know, experiences that they have? I think everything is an experience. And it's, I think, you know, they complain a lot, but it, it's a very exciting life. Or maybe not. Maybe I'm just totally romanticizing this. Um, because everything is an experience. Um, so basic things, right? Like going to the shop and uh, going to the doctors and going on the street and riding a car. Uh, all of this becomes an experience and becomes a material for, for stories. And uh, I think there's a great awareness on on journalists' part that what they are like that that these experiences are story material and everyday life makes it into their stories. Um, I think it really depends. The it, part of it they are kind of the travel is regulated and uh, circumvented, and they're not allowed to go everywhere. And if they want to go someplace, they need to, someplace that is kind of not their immediate area of work, which is uh, their respective capitals and then New York City, because this is the UN, uh, they had to apply for traveling uh, permits. So that was one thing. American correspondents obviously had to contend with Soviet censorship, at least until uh, 1961, and afterwards with the uh, what I call censorship, what they call censorship by expulsion. So if you wrote something that displeased the authorities, uh, you would be booted out. And this is some, you know, that was a consideration. It's something that was present in their daily life. I, American correspondents often kind of in private spoke about the inconvenience of this life, right? So how do we get you know, winter clothing, how do we go shopping? How do we get the things that we used to? Where do we order a fridge for the, like, bureau? Uh, where should it come from? Um, so a lot of this, so a lot of kind of the 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 everyday experiences, kind of that they're getting things that were really uh, reflected in the work. But they also had, they made friendships with uh, Soviet people. Um which they found really unusual and kind of Americans comment on how Soviets are friends in like very different ways. That these are very warm relationships and very warm friendships. And they found these um, relationships very warm. And, and they had friendships. Not many, but they had. Um, Soviets, one, one Soviet experience that is really recurring is the story of the supermarket, of course. Uh, and so what happens when you see uh, the American supermarket? It's like this became the apocryphal story, you know, for immigrants and kind of everybody. Uh, what is interesting is that they certainly appreciated the supermarket, but they also were absolutely shocked by the penury and poverty uh, around them. Um, not all American cities were safe or pleasant in the 1960s, 1970s. Uh, and certainly kind of the levels of, uh, you know, the levels of poverty and destitution that they saw were very surprising to them. And this is not something they have seen before. Was it the con like the contrast of like, you know, opulence on the one hand and then poverty on the other that, that struck them? 
Absolutely. And this is now, it's like a trope, right? The city of contrast and everybody laughs about this, but this is, you know, for these people, it was real because you go into this like glowing supermarket and you get out and there are all these, uh, you know, homeless people on the street. Uh, I think another thing for Soviets was um, the race relations, uh, which they couldn't stomach and, uh, and kind of found appalling. And really, a lot of them were very moved by the civil rights movement um, and by what they saw um, and reflected on this, um, on this, you know, in great depth. Um, there was, it involved separation, you know, something, this is something where I meet them, uh, in my head. Uh, you couldn't just travel so easy between the USSR and the United States. So if you went, you went for a very long time, uh, which means you would not have seen, you know, your parents and your friends, uh, in the Soviet case, uh, because the school was, um, the embassy school was until fourth or sixth grade. I can't remember, but so their older kids had to stay behind. Um, only kids of certain age could come to America. Uh, some journalists, so some some kids uh, kind of stayed there for long and actually went to American schools, but it wasn't like a very common practice. So a lot of them sent their kids back to school, which is again kind of. Uh, now that I'm older, I can empathize with this and um, and find this really striking. And what if something happens to your parent while you're overseas? So uh, this longing. Were they considered a security risk like American journalists were considered a security risk from the American side? Were so was the, Did the Soviet government see them as potential security risks? Oh, absolutely. Uh, information was a security risk. I mean, there's this kind of weaponization of information. So obviously, uh, they were a security risk. Um, Soviets always were wondering if American journalists are collaborating with the secret services in some way or the other. Um, are they there to conduct espionage? And in fact, a lot of these um, rules and regulations that they are confronting are kind of they're like anti-spy rules, right? Oh, you can't take a picture of this dam because it has a strategic importance. And actually two journalists get in trouble and were sued in a Soviet court for doing that, uh, for being on a tour and taking a picture. Um, Obviously, information control was very important for the Soviets. International information control was very important. And, and, uh, and for that reason, you know, un, um, unmonitored information or uncontrolled information, something that somebody writes and then faxes to their office was uh, a security risk. And for that reason, there was like a whole system of um, chaperoning them around. So there would be organized tours and people who worked for them would um, be KGB informants or some like informants for the security. So kind of they had to, all the staff that worked, all the Soviet staff that worked for them. So drivers, maids, translators, uh, Russian teachers, governesses, all these people had to be vetted and supplied by a special agency in the Soviet Union. And what about the, the Soviet, Soviet correspondents in the, in the United States? Were they also considered, you know, security risk? The Americans thought that, uh, I, I had this quote in the book that somebody in the State Department says, well, they're first, they're, they're like spies first and journalists second or something like this. Uh, so they were also considered security risk. And it's important to emphasize that at least the travel restrictions were absolutely reciprocal. So um, they were kind of applied in a, a paired manner. So Americans uh, suspect the Soviets, but the United States 
again, different truth systems. It has a very, it doesn't have a system that would monitor uh, what kind of maids work for a Soviet journalist. Uh, what they did have, they were uh, subject to surveillance quite a lot. And they all kind of spoke about this at the time and subsequently. Um, there would be searches in their apartments that, you know, kind of they would have like a very distinct feeling that somebody came in and looked like that somebody was there, but nothing kind of was gone. Um, at times, surveillance could be a good thing. So I had this one story in the book with Melor Sturua, who sadly passed away recently, uh, got lost on his way somewhere. And so he stopped the car. And there was a FBI surveillance car behind, so we stopped his car, went to the FBI surveillance car, and asked <laughs> for directions. <laughs> right. <laughs> so in this in this sense, the experiences are somewhat comparable, and in, in terms of like how each government treated foreign correspondents, um, you know, variations maybe in degrees, but they all because you hear this about American correspondents, you know, having their room searched, being followed, but we don't necessarily know so much about how what Soviet correspondence experienced um and it sounds somewhat similar yeah they were certainly comparable i think i still think it like it was a it was harder to be a journalist in the in like an american journalist in the soviet union um both because of what you were used to but also because these like these restrictive systems were really you know new to them and sometimes could be like super sinister uh, so especially when we have kind of the when the report when the dissident movement develops and there is a lot of kind of uh, reporting on the dissident movement, we see American journalists um, kind of beaten up. Their they, uh, equipment is confiscated. Um, one correspondent, um, like his car was, there was a bomb under his car. Uh, a bomb went out uh, under his car. Well, they were not in the car, but still, and kind of he was convinced that this was because of his report, that that was a warning sign for his reporting on uh, the dissident movement. Journalists were arrested and apprehended. So um, it, I think in Italy, it was a bit more, not a bit more, I think it, it was more difficult and uh, more sinister to work in, in Moscow or in the USSR. Can I just want to um, follow up on what we've been talking about? Um, so you talked earlier about how uh, at least U.S. foreign correspondents um, from the U.S. working in the Soviet Union were kind of seen as a security risk to the U.S., despite the fact that they were U.S. citizens. Um, and then they're also seen as a security risk to the Soviet Union. And then um, maybe there's some parallels on the other side as well. And I'm wondering, does this cause like a lasting effect in these journalists' lives, even after maybe they leave their careers or they retire? Um, I, I, I don't know. I didn't see this. And also, um, it's a, the American journalists are thought as security risk, specifically kind of in these early years. It really changes a lot uh, after 53. And after 53, they become not risks by assets. Um, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of kind of collaboration between journalists and diplomats in Moscow. Um, the State Department is very interested in their insights and kind of the government comes to recognize that these are, that this is a great source of knowledge about the Soviet Union, probably the best source of knowledge. Uh, and they start to utilize them. And uh, in fact, there are people from uh, security, national security establishment who get interested in just talking to them. 
and asking questions and asking so what is it like uh to be there so uh the kind of this is changing uh, and that does affect their lives because then you know they enter this expert community and uh become very appreciated and and they become celebrities in in these fields as well right they they have illustrious careers on television and they write you know, Pulitzer Prize winning books. And did, did a certain, did a similar type of acclaim uh, get attributed to Soviet correspondents in, in the Soviet Union? Were they given a special status as a, a public, a, a public status as a result? Oh, absolutely. Um, they also went on to have, you know, careers on television. Um, they became uh, faces and voices and people, their box, the books were printed in like these like crazy, like millions strong print runs and reprinted and reprinted. Um, they, because they worked for the nation's most prestigious newspapers in these very prestigious position, they were also had all these like systemic perks that you can have in the Soviet Union, right? So you'd be attached to kind of, you'd have like a high bureaucratic rank, so you'll get access to special shops and you would have a dacha and you would have like a very nice apartment. Um, people would, people knew their names and people knew who they are and people appreciated them and appreciated their expertise. So it kind of, it was like the Soviet equivalent of what happens in the United States, but again, certainly uh, a very, very valuable and appreciated. Some of them um, then became kind of central to the foreign policy administration or they would be called to write kind of bits of uh, the leader's speeches on various things and of course uh on television because soviet television is much smaller so if you you know lead this one program on foreign affairs on this one channel kind of hundreds of millions of people see your face every day so a, a lot of your 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 book is is structured around this issue of othering and mirroring right the story that soviet correspondents are telling about america is really also a story about soviet people and vice versa um, so talk talk about this role of of othering and and the the and mirroring and the importance it plays within the Cold War context. So othering is um, when journalists um, kind of when you think about observing this enemy within the ideological system, journalists need to explain the very existence of the other side, right? What is if socialism is so bad, how come these guys don't overthrow their socialist government? If capitalism is so bad, how come these Americans don't have a revolution? And so othering serves as an explanation. They are this way because they are fundamentally different from us. And then you have all sorts of uh, kind of explanatory systems going into this. So uh, the Soviets would talk about kind of how capitalism uh, corrupts uh, all aspects of American life and how kind of all the evils in the American system, they actually kind of hark back to capitalism. So stuff like racism or Vietnam, they're all kind of seen as a capitalist phenomena, this idea of a rotten West. Um, in the United States, this is this idea of eternal Russia. So um, the Soviets are seen as um, historically, culturally, and naturally predisposed to be ruled by oppressive leaders. Uh, and they're not kind of in their national cultural DNA, they are not suited for democracy. 
Um, and these kinds of, and, and so the, the other than, um, the other end then becomes the question. So why are they doing like this? Because they are different from us. Uh, and this is important. Uh, mirroring is taking practices and things that concern us and show how they play out elsewhere. And so this is mostly an inverted mirror because this examination results in some kind of positive reflection on domestic things. Now, um, both Soviet and American journalists um, write comparatively. Um, what I mean is that at the very core of international reporting, what this very was this form of comparative writing and reading that invited audiences to contrast a life on the other side, not with their daily life, but with the ideal image of their home country. So on both sides, we see foreign correspondents criticizing the enemy while being silent about the shortcomings of life at home and asking readers to appreciate the ideas and promises that their country stood for. And of course, these ideas and promises were the very heart of the respective Cold War ideology. Um, traditionally, the style of writing was seen as um, Soviet and kind of exclusively associated with uh, Soviet censored totalitarian journalism. Um, but kind of looking at these sources in tandem, you see that bias and subjective writing were also central to the work of American correspondents. And that journalists on both sides, through othering and mirroring, actively promoting promoted the ideas and values of the Cold War. And finally, you know, we're, we're now in a situation where um, information is part of the struggle or it plays an important role in U.S.-Russia relations. And of course, once again, journalists have an outsized role uh, in, in this struggle in terms of reporting the news and reporting what life is like, et cetera. So what are the, it's, talk about the legacy, do you, what do you see in today's reporting uh, on the United States and on Russia that, that harkens back to this Cold War period? Is it, do you see, is, has there been a fundamental break or do you see a, a more of a continuation? I think that there was a break at the time, but I think, uh, or I think it went milder, but everything comes back with vengeance since uh, 2016. So uh, these past five years were very interesting and shocking. Um, one of the things that I said is very kind of a very clearly comes is this idea, this binary of truth and lies. Uh, which was very central to the Cold War, that each side accused the other of lies and positioned itself as the paragon of truth. And so this idea that the rival, that the other's information is lies and our information is truth, um, is very central to to what to reporting kind of in the present. Another thing, and this relates to thinking about media and information as the core of uh, the respective national identity. So that information is kind of important, that like information is important to protecting our, our values, that the truthfulness of our information is what makes us like special and like plays a part in, in who we are. Uh, comes with that the idea of foreign information as a threat, right? So kind of uh, Russian bots, uh, Russian disinformation, American um, liberal, uh, you know, propaganda, 
so viewing like a foreign fashion as a threat to the nation's core values, I think these are really the re- these really kind of play out um, on both sides today. A couple of I think it was a couple of months ago that you and you you and I kind of spoke exchanged views on social media was this um, ad for a New York Times correspondent in Russia uh, that kind of said the words Putin come cover Putin's Russia uh, like five times and the entire ad was premised on the idea that whoever is going there they need to cover Putin's Russia so uh, I think this other thing is that this focusing on the center. Uh, and being completely kind of oblivious to what's happening in the periphery. And if you go to the periphery, then you go to demonstrate kind of how backward and decrepit and terrible it is. Uh, reporting on elites, which, you know, is a very distinct um, kind of trend that elites kind of are very important. Um, and also stressing the dichotomy between the regime and the people, uh, which was it was a big trope in the Cold War. Uh, but I think it's like it's really important uh, nowadays as well. Do you do you think what what role does does because media now is more market driven, uh, particularly in the Russian case, but in an American case too, it's it a foreign correspondent cores are much smaller. Uh, there's more media. There's more competition uh, with because of the internet. There's more profit. It's more profit driven than before. What do you what role do you do you see in in this need to you know uh, make a profit? And that means communicating and, and relating to what readers would want to hear. How does that contribute to uh, the shaping of the reporting? I think a great deal. Um, somebody wrote, it was maybe two years ago, there was this like beautiful article when uh, a Cold War correspondent from the Cold War correspondent wrote that um, how much of a contemporary reporting of Russia would not pass the quality control. Uh, at the time that he was uh, in Moscow. And so I think there's this, uh, in this effort to beat also the the new cycle that Amy is talking about, right? Uh, To make money, the new cycle, the clickbait. So there is a much more cavalier attitude towards information um, and much less responsible attitude towards evidence, um, much much less emphasis on careful writing and on kind of carefully articulating things. And I think in general, there are, you know, some amazing exceptions to this. There are journalists working today who are absolutely knowledgeable, fantastic, deep, and just brilliant to read. But there is also a great deal of information often produced kind of not by professional reporters, not by people who know the the other side, um, that is there and it's circulated and it's kind of irresponsible and contributes to this um, kind of fear-mongering and decline of proper understanding um, of what um, the other side is like. I also think that, and probably this is, you know, something that uh, plagues our contemporary kind of media culture as well, is that when you have a lot of information, it's very, very hard to sift through and to find kind of the good versus the, the reliable versus the less reliable and to even kind of exercise kind of any quality control uh, over information. I also see it's almost a, a weird double burden in a sense. On the one hand, there's so much information, like you just said, but on the other hand, because there are so many, because of technology where anyone can chime in, I think there's also an, an intensification of the disciplining effect. 
So because, you know, I, and I've seen this on social media where if a journalist writes an article that doesn't fit into the, you know, ideological parameters that exist today, the, the, the cost, it seems, is much more than what it was, say, you know, 50 years ago, just because now you can be, you know, hounded online, you can, et cetera, et cetera, right? You can be denounced in a variety of different ways. Mm -hmm. And there, and then it makes you much much less prone to question like existing, you know, uh, kind of whatever is the convention of the day, kind of makes you much less uh, prone to write against it and actually think twice before posting something like this. And it does get very vicious and very personal. Like nobody would, you know, in the cold world, you wouldn't get personal letters to your house. Right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's the, what I think is one of the great ironies of this is that there, the disciplinary mechanisms are even, I think, even more apparent. Uh, Amelia? Yeah, thanks. Um, so, obviously, during the Cold War, the, the big other, the main other was the Soviet Union or for the Soviet Union was the U.S. Um, and I'm wondering... Just like in your research, have you found any contemporary examples or do you think that's shifted at all uh, in modern reporting of, of who, um, who we define the other as in order to, to define ourselves? I think there are several others going on, right? So like the global um, terrorist threat, however conceptualized, um, that was big. Um, I think Donald Trump kind of tried to make China into this, um, but not in the same intensity. No, uh, Russia still plays a role, and you would see like these weird comments, like "Oh, we like people to this day tell you, you know, when they object to like U.S. like to national healthcare in the U.S., they'd be like, oh, we don't want to be socialists.'" And who was it recently? Oh, there was this like, oh, you know, there was like really recently, like a couple weeks ago, somebody like. Cong like a senator or congresswoman said, oh, you know where else they had a free education system? Uh, in the Soviet Union. Uh, and, and so kind of it's really surprising and, uh, and interesting that uh, these examples pop up, right? So how uh, even though the Soviet Union is kind of gone, not kind of, it's gone, uh, this is still kind of... Um, serves as like you often meet it as this reference point much more than kind of many other things uh but it's i think it's there but certainly not um certainly not to the same extent that it was uh, in the cold war because the, the kind of the entire system and the entire culture was kind of geared towards this uh, comparison and stressing and thinking about us and them and uh you know, uh, it kind of you buy from your local, you open local business and you stick it to the Soviets, um, th things like that. So it was like really embedded in how people, um, in people's everyday lives, much more so than than it is today. And interestingly, I think one of the reasons for that is because of the journalists, because you know, every day you opened. A newspaper or listen to radio, you saw, you were invited to think about yourself and encouraged to think about yourself in comparison to the Soviet Union. And, and now I have to say, like all of these weird references back to the Soviet Union, or even, even to Russia to some extent, but also 
uh, you know, the way America is portrayed in, in Russian media, it's, it's almost like a parody of itself, of parody of some sort of Cold War, you know, live action role playing. There's the, I always see a certain unacknowledged desire to go back to that time to recreate it because it was it was a binary, right? You don't have uh, a myriad of others that that stand, you know, as other references. It just makes makes, and I'm here. I'm only going to speak from the American side. It makes the world simpler um, to have this big other. Oh, it, I agree, and you know how they would trace um, kind of everything back to Moscow, right? Uh, kind of everything you could trace effectively everything back to foreign influences and to kind of a communist meddling, uh, which was simpler, and uh, you needed only to understand kind of this, or make pretend that you understand this one group of people, uh, but not to make sense of all these different people that you are kind of dealing with. This, um, I think, I think this, I think for for Russian, for Russians, for Russia. Uh, this um, there's also this nostalgia because it meant that you were great uh, and kind of being an, kind of one of the markers of the Soviet Union's greatness was that it was you know considered like a proper rival uh, to the United States that it was kind of uh, led this uh, kind of entire system of uh, ideas and values and things. I sometimes think that you know, like Putin's occasional trolling of uh, of the West, is kind of harks back to that. Okay. That that it kind of really tries to um, to to play with these stereotypes and kind of. Um, evoke them a little bit so there there is also a nostalgia for different reasons but there's also kind of this nostalgia for for this world where you were a leader and not you know a junior partner and uh and a lot of kind of foreign policy conflicts in um you know recent years or even since the collapse of uh of the soviet union were about status and about recognition about russia kind of feeling not recognized and not seen that was Dina Feinberg. Dina Feinberg is a lecturer in modern history at the University of London. Her new book is Cold War Correspondence, Soviet and American Reporters on the Ideological Frontlines, 1945 to 1991, published by Johns Hopkins University Press. So Amelia, uh, we just heard this interview with Dina, and I, I, found it I found it incredibly fascinating and really enjoyed uh, talking to her. So what did you think? What are some of the thoughts you had? I really like the points that she brought up about um, othering. And you all talked about that for quite a while. Is like, what, what requirements are there to effectively other a, a, a different group of people? And how is that used to describe yourself? And the point that I really liked was that there has to be enough similarities with this other for you to effectively hate them. Like you can't hate something you don't understand, right? There has to be enough things that you relate to, to where you can really see and grasp these differences. And they have to be small enough to actually grasp for you to effectively, you know, hate on this other group of people. And what comes to mind is like, especially these kind of rivalries between states here in the US and in the Midwest, like nobody hates Ohio more than the states 
bordering Ohio, the people in the states bordering Ohio. And yeah, I just really, I think that that's a, such an interesting concept and, and starts this kind of dive into like the human psyche and the sociological impacts of similarities between groups of people. And going along with that, I mean, just to use your Ohio example, it what fascinates me is how that the hatred of the other or the difference with the other is really important for constituting the self. And this this goes into what I mentioned in the intro, this fascination with uh, Russia and the American imagination. It's not so much how Russia is portrayed in the sense of trying to understand the essence of Russia. It's not really about that. It's the types of tropes and images and discourse that's used to construct Russia, you know, and how that lends to a conception of the American self. Um, and this mirroring, what Dina talks about mirroring and other othering is it is an interesting concept that, you know, works in so many different ways. But I think that what's really important for her book is looking at the role that journalists play, the unique role they play in in crafting that relationship. And and I really encourage those uh, those journalists out there who listen to the podcast to um, to read Dina's book because not only is it a history of your profession in terms of being a, a correspondent, foreign correspondent in Russia, uh, but I think she gives really great attention to that that process of othering and mirroring and the institutional and ideological constraints that one a journalist may be conscious or unconscious of that informs how you construct that Russian other or or American other for that matter. And it's an especially important um, important topic to think about and get interested in as like we're seeing in journalism, you know, as the decline of print and as it's harder to make money as a journalist, as it's harder to work in publishing at all. Um, this becomes important to think about balancing these kind of really powerful uh really powerful ways that you have of constructing narratives of constructing ideas with how do you actually create something that people want to read? That's going to sell your newspapers. That's going to sell your books. That's going to sell your, uh, you know, blog. It's a, it's a balancing act. And that's, that's actually a real, I think a really important point is we should never in all of our discussions of about this. And I think this is actually something that, um, you know, a lot of people I know are into criticizing how Russia is reported on. And I think one of the things that's missing in a lot of this criticism is, you know, when it comes down to it, reporting journalism today, as it has been for a very long time, is profit driven. And the burden of having to take a place like Russia and make it relatable and consumable to American readers you know, is is a major factor. You know, why, again, why should Americans care about that place? Well, you know, I can make all sorts of arguments, but, you know, journalists have that burden of, of crafting a story that Americans would be interested in reading about. Yeah. And and on a deadline. Yeah. And and on the dead. Yes. Thank you. And on a deadline. So. So you've been listening to the SRB podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Amelia Parler. Um, as always, uh, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. 
and members of the SRB Table of Ranks. If you'd like to support the podcast, please go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. Also, if you enjoy the podcast, please take a moment to share it on um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. We're now on all of those networks. Uh, so please help spread the word. And, and also the best way too is to tell your friends and family about the podcast. Until next time, bye. See that guy with the red suspenders Driving that car with the bright red fenders I know he's one of those heavy spenders Get that communist Joe He's filling my gal with propaganda And I'm scared she will meander Don't want to take a chance that he'll land her Get that communist Joe He's the most revolting character And the fellas hate him so But with the girls this character Is a comrade Romeo And the lobby has been dodging